you know, there's always the carrot and the stick, right? And the carrot has always been like this technological wonderland that if you just obey and fall in line, you'll be able to take part in. But that technological wonderland is not coming. Monday, gang. It is I, your host, every single week here on Lions of Liberty, Mark Clare. And for those of you that have been kind of following along at home here, uh, some of you may have heard, and if you haven't, you should go check it out, uh, my episode zero, which kind of marked the relaunch of Lions of Liberty with Mark Clare. You can find that in the Lions of Liberty with Mark Clare podcast feed released that in early january um for those of you listening on the lions of liberty network feed where you can find all our shows including this one uh, electric liberty land with brian mcwilliams and finding freedom with john odermatt but if you hop over to the lions of liberty with mark claire feed you will find that episode zero and i mentioned how we're going to get into a lot of different areas a lot of different subjects that i just never touched before now one of those of course was the vaccine issue and we dove deep into that with dell big tree a few weeks ago and today we're going to get into another one of those areas and for a lot of you this is going to be kind of stuff that that you would see as weird um kooky maybe even uh but I, I i've been following along with the kind of dialogue we're going to have today for quite a long time in my life in my personal life i've never really talked about it in podcast form before uh but i i've done so long enough to feel that it is no longer just something kooky and i've seen enough to think that there is actually a lot to this and so that's why I'm going to present it to you. And you can you can take anything you hear with a grain of salt, or you can dive deeper. Uh, but either way, I think this is an important conversation that you're going to hear with myself and my guest today. So with that being said, let's get ready to roar, shall we? <laughs> my guest today... He is the author of several books, including Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. He's also the author of The Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music, as well as the novel He Will Live Up in the Sky. He is the proprietor of the Secret Sun blog, where you can find all of his writings on pop culture and occult symbolism. I'm very pleased to welcome Christopher Knowles. Chris, are you ready to roar? I'm ready. I've been practicing my roaring all morning, so. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today, Chris, is going to be somewhat unfamiliar to a lot of the audience, because for a long time, as we discussed before the show, this this has been largely about um, political theory, this show, and we've kind of taken a turn away from that in many ways, and mm-hmm. I'm discussing a lot of things that I've been interested in over the years that I haven't really brought into this show as much, uh, and that's what we're going to do here today. But before we get into all that stuff, I want to learn a little bit more about yourself and your background, so how did this all start for you? How did you first take interest in pop culture and maybe more so a lot of what lies behind our pop culture. You know, I always say it has to do with growing up as a kid in the seventies because all this stuff was all over the place in the seventies and in a way that, you know, it wasn't later on, excuse me. um, You had sort of like a a generation of like hippies and such that started entering the mainstream culture such as it was. And and we're bringing a lot of the stuff in Um, what I, had learned later on is that this was really starting in the in the 60s with you know certain programs that were 
designed to start bringing a lot of darker elements, darker spiritual elements into the uh, into the pop culture. You know, starting in 1966 with like Anton LaVey and Sybil Leak and you know the the first slasher movies and all this kind of stuff that we saw really ramp up up into the 80s and that sort of coincided with the um serial killer phenomenon you know one thing that i noticed that was very interesting is how the rise and fall of the serial killer phenomenon basically was you know correlated to the rise and fall of slasher movies Hmm. you you see what i'm saying that the, the two were feeding into each other um but there was always a lot of esoteric content in the pop culture that I was consuming as a child. And, I, and you know, it's just something I took for granted. And it wasn't until later on that I started to realize, oh, well, this is what this means, and this is what they were saying, and this is, this is that, and this is that. So this process kind of snowballed, you know, and I started working in, in pop culture fields in high school, basically. And uh, started working professionally as a cartoonist very early and then got into uh, advertising and packaging and, you know, just understood how messages are packaged, how messages are created, how they're disseminated, um, you know, the, the exact processes that, you know, people in, you know, sitting in these meetings when they were just like taking some product that was just absolute garbage and they knew it was garbage and they're like, how are we going to make this sellable? How are we going to make people want this? And, um, you know, just understanding how, you know, the realities of, of message manipulation, even at just that, that level, just like a sort of a basic consumer level, and just sort of extrapolating and seeing like the same techniques and the same, you know, propaganda methods being used up and down the line, you know, through uh, politics and culture creation. And it was really, you know, it was really kind of eye-opening for me because as soon as I started to realize how this stuff works at that level and then seeing it at higher levels and then starting to understand, you know, the basics of, you know, the esotericism and then, I mean, I'll just say for a long time, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it until I started to understand like ritual magic Mm. and I started to understand like, you know, the supernatural and how all this stuff works together, that I really began to, you know, it all sort of clicked into place. I really started to understand how messaging and just these other elements, you know, all coalesce and snowball in a certain way and are fed, you know, to the public, you know, 24 hours a day now. I mean, we have this World Wide Web and we have, you know, constant media, we have social media. I mean, so many of these messages are just fed in, and and we're really starting to see the fruits of that now. We're starting to see how, um, I mean, I would argue that human physiology is changing now. You know, the human physiology is changing in, in in reaction to this constant process of conditioning, and that's the thing that was also very important to me was just understanding how this was a conditioning process. There was always sort of this thought in like i don't know conspiracy circles or whatever that this was like oh well they're doing this because they're going to do this and you know this is all just preparation for this and it's like 
I started to realize, I mean, I never really went along with that. I started to realize that it's all about conditioning. It's about incessant, constant reinforcement of the message. And like I said, I mean, I think that's had profound effects, you know, not only on, on culture and society, but I think on just our basic physiology, you know. Did you have a particular moment or maybe something that might be the equivalent of a red pilling where you really had that revelation that you, where you went from just thinking, okay, this is just some assholes doing some marketing to sell their shitty products to when you said, okay, no, this is actually, there's something much more insidious behind all of this. You know, asking me about red pilling is funny because I grew up in a, a very strange town uh, outside of Boston called Braintree that I've, I've written about. I, I have a, book out a new edition of my book called the endless american midnight where i talk about this at length and just how surreal it was to to grow up in a town that was like um sort of a cross between uh twin peaks and sin city <laughs> you know it was just <laughs> it like, sounds like a hell of a place to grow up <laughs> well i mean the you know like the maf the, the the various mafias and, and organized crime you know families and so on because Braintree was sort of this big transportation hub, you know, we're using it for like sex trafficking, drugs, uh, human trafficking. I mean, all you name it. It was, um, and it's something that you just kind of grew up, like almost just. I don't know if you accepted or, or you were oblivious to it or whatever. But it's just like it wasn't until I went back not so long ago and just started reading all the newspaper accounts, and I was like, that was right down the street from me. You know what I mean? Just like realizing that all this crazy stuff. I mean, for instance, the park where we um, used to play basketball every day uh, across the street, um, Whitey Bulger had one of his uh, lieutenants knocked off and dumped, you know, thrown in the dumpster in the park, the parking lot across the street. I mean, I don't know, 50, 60 feet away from where we were playing basketball. Wow. And, um, you know, it was just like that, that kind of insidious thing. You know, another great example would be like Blue Velvet. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've seen the movie Blue yeah, Velvet, yeah. but it's like Lumberton. It was, you know, it's just that kind of thing. I mean, but, it, you know, basically what it was is just incredible amounts of corruption. And, um, you know, and this wasn't just a long time ago. I mean, just a few years ago, there was this huge scandal where um, somebody had been stealing like, drugs and guns and money from the police evidence locker and then they had to throw out all these court cases and then like they blamed this girl who was in my homeroom in high school i mean she was on the track team <laughs> you know it's like and then of course she felt so sad about it she committed suicide quote unquote um but you know the the amount of corruption that i just grew up seeing i for instance i mean this is another thing i wrote about there was like um an open pedophile and i mean real pedophile i don't mean like jeffrey epstein pedophile i mean like somebody attracted to like 11 year old boys you know what mm -hmm. i mean like prepubescent boys i mean but there was this guy had you know he started teaching in 58 everybody knew about this everybody knew what was going on everybody knew who like what kids you know were, were in his little harem and, you know, how he just seemed to have phenomenal amounts of money for, you know, a middle school teacher in the 1970s. He was arrested when he was finally arrested. He was arrested on a 52 foot yacht off the coast of Florida, you know, on a, a, a middle school teacher's salary. Um, but also, I mean, the the the, uh, 
the priest scandals, a, a lot of those, like the most notorious priests had served in my town. Um, just really phenomenal uh, corruption up and down the line. So it's just like I had been red-pilled from birth, basically. I mean, I just grew up in a town where, like, you had to be careful because, you know, there, there are predators around. You know, you, you learn to be very street smart. You learn to grow up really quickly. And so, I, I mean, I was never sheltered. You know, right. I, I was never naive about the ways of the world. So, you know, I, it's just something that was inculcated from a very early age. And, you know, and I had, I had this stuff reach into my life. I mean, I had like, you know, this affected me personally um, on a number of different levels. Like, you know, people around me kind of getting sucked up into this, but also like, you know, the, the, the military intelligence aspect to it. And again, I mean, this is stuff that I, I wasn't able to put the pieces all together until I went back and started reading all these like newspaper accounts and news accounts about like all the stuff that was going on all around me. And it, like, you just kind of sensed, I mean, I got out of that town as soon as I could, but it, it's just, uh, I was red pilled from a very early age, believe me. All right, gang. Well, I got to pop in here real quick to toss you a pill of my own. I w- I'm not going to red pill you today. I'm going to I trust Pilia. I'm going to I trust Capital Pilia. And this is really, truly one of my favorite sponsors, not just because I, I love what they're doing, but you know, they, let's be honest, they've paid us a lot of money over these over the last year or so. And that is because you guys have been responding to this advertisement for our friends at I Trust Capital. These guys let you invest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. They have the lowest fees on the market. You can do so all within the tax structure of a, structure of a traditional IRA and protect those gains from that's right. Taxation, which you know is creeping in here on cryptocurrencies uh, as we speak. Not just creeping in. I mean, it's here. <laughs> it is absolutely here. So the, the better you can protect the gains on those assets, uh, the better off you're going to be. And our friends at iTrust Capital are experts at that. So check it out right now because not only are they waiving their fees if you go sign up at our link, you are also going to get $100 in Bitcoin. So head over to iTrust.capital slash Lions today. Well, what was going on in that town? like? besides just normal mob stuff because you mentioned it kind of being like twin peaks too so was there some kind of supernatural element that you were kind of exposed to or became aware of there as well personally i'm a person who's always just had the sense you know of of the supernatural so i mean i I just see it as a backdrop in the world you know i don't necessarily think like it's separate you know what i mean but i mean as far as you know Occult things, um, not far from me was uh, the Bridgewater Triangle. And there was, I I think in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of like satanic murders there, um, like of prostitutes and so on. There were were cults sort of operating in and out of there. And also um, in the early 80s, there was the whole clown thing that, that inspired it. You know, that was the inspiration for Stephen King for it. And that was happening like all around, you know, my area and stuff. What was the clown thing then? Was there like, uh, like weird cat clowns showing up and kidnapping kids, or what was that? Because I know there was a kind of a clown phenomenon even a, a couple of years ago for for a little while. You were seeing a lot of like reports of creepy clowns. Yeah, it was basically like somebody driving around in like a rape van, and like you know, would stop, see a bunch of kids, and like 
a clown would bust out of the back and like start chasing them and stuff. I mean, just I don't like I don't have the, all the details off the top of my head, but it made national news, and it, and it was such a phenomenon that Stephen King, you know, wrote a book about it. So, I mean, your your town, the way you describe that town, sounds very much like the kind of town like a, a Stephen King novel would be set in. Yeah, well, it's not far, you know. I mean, it's Massachusetts. It's not yeah. too far from uh, from Maine. It was weird, man, but you know. Basically, what it is, is that, again, I mean, it's a town where organized crime was very active. And organized crime is never just like this dry, sterile pursuit of profits. There's always a lot of strange things get, that get mixed in. I mean, you're, the overlap between organized crime, military intelligence, the occult, occult groups, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's pretty well documented by now. You know, it's not, it's not a speculation by any means it's something that exists and just like sort of just growing up um in the midst of this and also i mean you know you're talking like this was like mk ultra ground zero you know that um uh, this is amazing when i go back and read about this stuff i just can't believe it but it's just like mk ultra like the headquarters was at boston what was it boston children's hospital i think or it was one of the, the big hospitals in Boston. There was like a wing that had shut down, and basically MK Ultra had, had set up shop there. And of course, you know, when I talk about Whitey Bulger, he's, you know, he was a MK Ultra subject. He was very open about that, that he had been uh, subject to these experiments when he was in, in prison. I think it was in Folsom in California. So, um, you know, the, uh, also, I mean, not far from where my family was living before I was born and where my father moved after my parents split up um, was uh, where MK Ultra, you know, literally the, the airport, it was uh, the, the air base in Squantum where all the, you know, people from Pinamunda, you know, Warner Von Braun, uh, all these people were flown in and then they were housed in, in an island off the coast of this town in Boston Harbor. And it was the same building that they used for the exteriors for that movie, Shutter Island. Do you remember yeah. that movie, Shutter yeah, Island? Yeah, yeah, great Leonardo movie. DiCaprio? Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, that's actually not far from, you know, this area that I'm talking about. And uh, so you can never really separate that kind of stuff from crime i mean it's it's all a continuum as far as i'm concerned and, and then also like you know culture and drugs and and all these kind of things it's all mixed in and because a lot of you know where the counterculture sort of grew up was in a lot of like clubs and bars owned by the by the mob by organized crime and that's why you, you would have things like operation midnight climax being used through those same um those same facilities so, I mean, one of the things that, you know, what, what is that exactly? Operation Midnight Climax. So Operation Midnight Climax was part of NK Ultra. And, and basically what it was is that um, men would show up at these brothels and be dosed, you know, with high amounts of LSD. And then their, you know, their encounters and their reactions would be filmed. Um, you know, basically the prostitutes would be given a you know, number of different prompts and stuff questions to ask them and stuff. I mean, this stuff would all be like filmed and stuff. They wanted to observe 
uh, how this would all play out. I mean, you know, personally, I don't believe MK Ultra was was. I mean, I've said this number of times. I mean, I think the the, the ultimate goals of MK Ultra were supernatural. I mean, I think that the the ultimate goals, and it, when you start to read between the lines in a lot of the the literature, you, you realize that their real goal wasn't some sort of and you know Manchurian candidate stuff. Really, what it was is entity possession. It was. I mean, they I've read this almost verbatim that it's like we want to take one personality destroy it and replace it with another personality you know well where does that personality come from i mean you know how does this work and it's basically you know and this is a thing like again when i study started studying ritual magic and stuff and you realize that so many of the these so-called scientific techniques that they were using were basically ancient shamanistic techniques that, that go back tens of thousands of years Plus LSD. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting too because the um, you know the ancient mystery cults would use LSA, which mm. you know was from um, from wheat rust, and it's basically a very close derivative of LSD. And and if I'm not mistaken, Albert Hoffman, you know, was studying like these stories, you know, from wheat rust and ergot, and you know, all these kind of reactions to these. Uh, contaminations of crops, these fungal contaminations of crops that would cause these hysterias. But the other thing, you know, another thing that I, I really have to point out here, um, and again, I mean, people who know my work are going to be familiar with this, but I had actually gone to school and I was in a at least one class with somebody who, like, if you would ask me, like, who, who, who would you point to to prove, like, that there was, like, this program going on to create these, like, controlled assassins and stuff? And it was a girl that I knew called uh, Amy Bishop, and she ended up being, um, uh, you know, the University of um, Alabama Huntsville mass shooter. I mean, basically, she was a, a microbiologist. So there you go. There's a little, <laughs> little, little red flag there. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was a, you know, a terrible. You know, she was a. She went to Harvard and all that rest of it, and then. She was just shuttled through the system, even though at every point in time, everyone said that she was, uh, you know, useless as a scientist and terrible teacher. At one point, her, her students had petitioned her to be removed. And then, you know, one day she just she's sitting in a room with a bunch of microbiologists studying you know, viruses and so on and gets up and shoots them. I think like five or six of them. Well, the interesting thing about that, go, going back to like where I grew up, is that she had um, murdered her brother back in 1986, in December of 1986. And um, the entire system went into overdrive to, to get her off the hook, you know, from the police chief all the way up to the FBI. You know what I mean? That there was, I, you know, this is something that I detail in, in, in the Endless American Midnight, how like this woman was just basically a loose cannon you know, starting with the murder of her brother in 1986, a kid who I knew, by the way. Um, and at every level, you know, she would like, she had been sending letter bombs. She was um, investigated by the, uh, the Unabomber task force. She was let off the hook. Um, she had just been involved in all these crimes. And, uh, you know, I just detail, it's like, this woman is on the rampage 
and the entire system seems hell-bent on getting her off. And it isn't just like the, the corruption of the Braintree police, which is real and, and was very much in effect. I mean, there was definitely a cover-up because her files were, were found in the, in the attic of like a retired police captain. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, uh, it's just amazing how this all played out. And it, you know, it had nothing to do with like sparing a bear. I mean, this was, she was part of a program. I mean, she was involved in all these, these youth projects and stuff like that, which is just part of like cherry picking, you know, good candidates, whether, you know, you want people like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or somebody, or you, or you're looking for people who, you know, are on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, it's just phenomenal. But again, I mean, it's just something that was part of the background growing up. So that might have been like, I don't know if like, if, if I hadn't been red-pilled by then, I mean, that would have been my second red pill. I'm just realizing just how incredibly corrupt the system was and that there was all these other elements playing into this, that it's never just like, you know, the guy stealing like a half a million dollars or something from like the town treasury. I mean, that's always just a one-off. But when you have these these larger crimes of scale, they're always it always gets weird. It just it just does because that's part of the power structure. It's a very strange and complicated and very, very creepy thing, you know. All right, guys, I got to take a quick time out to tell you about our good friends, Carlos and Vanessa Abelar and their incredible CBD company, Paloma Verde CBD. You can find them at palomaverdecbd.com. And there is simply nowhere else you should be turning to for your CBD products, whether you use them for aches and pains, for dealing with a little of that insomnia, or just general stress, CBD is a fantastic resource without having to worry about getting all high or anything like that, uh, like you would from the THC component. Uh, this is CBD is purely the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana plant. Uh, extremely helpful for all, all sorts of things. Also for your pets, it can really help your pets too. And you can find everything you could possibly need tinctures, gummies, the gummies, my God, the gummies are delicious. You can find them all over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com. But the best part is you got to use promo code ROAR and you will get 25% off any order over $75 and free shipping. That's right. And free shipping. Check it out. PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Do not forget to use that discount code ROAR for a tremendous discount. Uh, one thing I want to explore a little bit is something you mentioned uh, at the top of this interview when you were talking about the rise of slasher films and how that kind of correlated uh, with some things that were happening in the news. It's like how it correlated with the rise of sort of the serial killer phenomenon. Can you dig into that a little bit more and, and what like later in life, what you could look back and see? Oh, this here's the connection here. Like what 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 are we actually seeing in these films that is part of this conditioning that you've referred to? Well, so the slasher films really start out in the mid sixties, right? I mean, <clears throat> you know, arguably it would start out with Psycho, but the the real sort of junky, trashy, drive-in theater ones are really starting in the, in the mid sixties with like buckets of blood and films like that, Ten Thousand Maniacs, and you know, part of this is being fed by a guy named Roger Corman, who's, who has American International Pictures, and, and Corman had all kinds of intelligence connections and so on. You know, like he did a lot of filming in the Philippines in the 70s during the whole Golden Triangle thing, and 
it's you know it's it all just gets very sketchy but you realize like how much of like pop culture and this is something when i was studying for for our gods wear spandex <clears throat> studying how much money laundering is such a huge part of this that you know junk culture you know things that would be sold at the newsstand the newsstands were all owned by the mob they were just phenomenal money laundering tools you know it was, uh, quarters dimes you know it was a cash business a lot of money coming in and out and then you know and then you realize like same thing applies to hollywood but especially like sort of junky low budget stuff you know these junky low budget movies that you can never seem to understand how they get produced and who's watching them and you know like why does this stuff even exist that describes a lot of films i've seen where you're like how who made why does this exist <laughs> yes yes well i mean money laundering tax write-offs but i also think when you start to deal with like international productions that i think a lot of these films were just basically fronts for drug smuggling you know and i recently reread um weird scenes from the canyon by dave mcgowan and he's talking about how like john phillips papa john phillips of the mamas and the papas was actually arrested for for drug trafficking and was just basically let off not even with a slap on the wrist you know so you just start to realize when you start to look at a lot of these, you know, pop culture things like movies and, and, you know, like, again, like I said, the new stand and, and rock bands. I mean, I'm really starting to wonder how many rock bands were involved in smuggling and stuff, because I mean, Led Zeppelin is a great example because Led Zeppelin was basically run by the mob. Um, you know, all the people who were involved in their management were all, British gangsters, you know, London gangsters. And the interesting thing about it is like Led Zeppelin had such power in the 70s because they would come to America. And, you know, I mean, the American music industry, you know, was corrupt, but it's sort of like been de-mafiaized, de-mobized, you know, people like uh, Morris Levy and stuff like that were sort of taken out of the equation by when it became more corporate. So, um, Led Zeppelin would come around and and they just had the entire music industry terrified of them. You know what I mean? Because they would, they, they had no compunctions. I mean, there's a, a notorious case that somebody who was working for Bill Graham in, in, in California, because Bill Graham basically controlled all the, you know, the live music venues on the West coast. But so he was producing a Led Zeppelin tour and one of his, um, security men had like slapped john bonham's son and and john bonham and like all these like mobster friends of his grabbed this the security guard and pulled him into a trailer and like beat him almost to death like he was almost beaten completely to death um and you know after that bill graham said i'm not dealing with let's up at all anymore I mean, that, that was that was the end of it for him but you just realize i mean what kind of impunity like what culture of impunity would just give rise to that you know what i mean where like they would nearly kill a man you know for something that was obnoxious and you know there, there should have been some repercussions for that but you know not to beat him half to death so it just goes to show you that there was a, a tremendous culture of impunity within that organization and i do wonder if they and other groups were you know being used as conduits for 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 drug trafficking 
And one of the reasons why I, I wonder about this is that in the early 80s, when a lot of bands started going to the far east, they would, you know, they got a lot, a lot of heat from like customs and, and the local police and military and stuff because they, they were all seen as potential, potential drug smugglers. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's like... Well, they were certainly users, so, I mean, it's, yeah, well, it's, it's yeah, not yeah, that yeah, far right, of a stretch, right. yeah. Well, you know, there's funny. There's a funny story. So the, the Grateful Dead had um, booked a tour of Egypt, right? And they were going to play the pyramids. I, I think this is in 76, 77. And um, the problem was is that half the band were really heavily addicted to heroin. And they were like, well, how are we going to do this? Because they knew that if they tried to smuggle heroin into Egypt, they would all end up in Egyptian prisons for the rest of their lives. Not where you want to be. Yeah. So what they did is that they, you know, they had one of the doctors on their payroll just give them jars of like Dilaudid and Percodan and codeine. I mean, morphine. They they went (laughs) they went to, to Egypt for like these jugs of opioids, you know, of opioid pills. That, and, and they had to like sit there and write phony prescription. They had to sit there and type out phony prescription <laughs> labels, you know, like, oh, this is just like, you know, for gout or something. This is for like, <laughs> I don't know. For, I have a lot of know. anxiety here, so we're just going to check <laughs> these in. <laughs> so like, that's how they were able to, to swing it. They, they just, they just showed up with like massive stocks of, uh, of, of opioids. So you, you just kind of wonder, but like I said, it just seems that there's a lot of indications of this. And I, I don't think anybody until McGowan had really started to put a lot of the pieces together. And a lot of ways, I, I think he could have gone farther with that. But, um, you know, it's just really interesting to see that, you know, mu- I mean, I was a huge Led Zeppelin fan. I mean, I loved Led Zeppelin, you know, obsessed with them at one point. And, uh, you know, you realize that that these weren't good guys, you know, these weren't, these weren't good people, but there's, again, you were asking about the supernatural. So there's obviously, you know, heavy connotations with the supernatural with page and his connections with Kenneth anger. And, and I had actually written a big, a new uh, magazine article about this, but, um, you know, that stuff always catches up with you and, and Led Zeppelin really, I mean, they paid for it. They paid very dearly for their, their transgressions. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the pitch that you never read that, you know, there's always this kind of promise that if you, if you secret societies, if you cult to something that, you know, your dreams are going to come true, but they, they don't, you don't read the fine print where they said, also your nightmares, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your nightmares are going to come true too, right? There's some really fine print there. Yeah. So, so let's dig into that a little bit more. Let's dig into how, because I, I think one thing that I, I have seen even before really finding your work and the work of others who talk about this sort of stuff is that it's very obvious to me, whatever one might believe is real about, about the stuff, about the occult, about this, the sort of supernatural stuff, whether to whatever extent it's real or not, I, I've, 
I don't think it's, I think it's hard to deny that the symbology is absolutely intentionally used in our pop culture, in the media, and it is used by elites for certain ends. Now we can maybe get into what your beliefs are about the reality of it, but there's, it's very obvious. It doesn't even take a ton of research to see that the symbology is used. So then that leads to the question, why is it used? What is the purpose of it? What do they intend to get out of it? So maybe we can just start there. It's a big question, but what do the elites either believe? or what do they purport to believe in in order to use for their ends, whatever that may be? Well, I mean, when you you use a term like the elites, I mean, that's, you know, which elites? Sure. There are a lot of different factions and stuff. I mean, one of the things that I've really been focused on from the very beginnings of the blog, because I saw this stuff for myself in New York, was all the Mithraic symbolism. And this is something that I think most people are kind of oblivious to. but. Um, just a bit of background. So basically during like the late Republic, early empire period of, of ancient Rome, there was basically a a religion concocted called Mithraism. And it was based, you know, there are a number of different precedents for this. You know, Mithra is a sort of Zoroastrian figure, God of light. And also ties back to, uh, Hinduism and stuff. So there's this lineage here but the the mithras of the mithraic cults as they came to be known that had basically recruited the creams of the crop of roman society was was much different than mithra you know it was a much different figure than mithra okay so this was a secret society and um you know very exclusive and would practice what's called right, rights by ordeal, initiation by ordeal. So basically, you know, it's kind of like hazing, but a little more intense, you know, <laughs> a little more intense and hazing. And also, um, I mean, it's the direct precursor to, to, to Freemasonry because they had the degrees and, and such. I think they had, uh, it was seven degrees. And, you know, there was a lot of humiliation and ordeal and so on. But there was also, you know, one thing that a lot of sort of orthodox scholars are shy to admit, but when you start to read the actual literature, you realize is sort of at the basis of this, is that uh, this was a drug cult, you know, that these rites were basically set up to optimize, you know, whatever result they were looking for from, from drug trips. And there's actually something called the Mithraic Liturgy. Um, that su- survives to this day. I mean, it's it's part of a bigger codex of of texts and so on, but it it basically describes you know somebody tripping out and being abducted by by aliens onto a spaceship, you know, pretty much. And it was written two thousand years ago. So I mean, I don't know. You, you tell me what's going on there. So, um, but anyway, so this was a um, a very powerful cult within the military, and one of the things that I came to see is that it was created to be a tool of empire because what you had is that you had the roman legions setting out all across the world and you know any occupation relies on the you know the cooperation of local elites so i i believe that mithraism was a tool to recruit and to ensure the the loyalty of these local leaders and so on 
in these these countries that that Rome had colonized. And you see this repeat with Freemasonry, because Freemasonry is something that had been around since the Middle Ages, but it really becomes like a thing in like the 17th century, 18th century, which marks the beginning of the rise of the British Empire. So, I mean, the British Empire was using Freemasonry as a tool of empire, and they're falling directly on the lines of, of Mithraism. You know, it's like they show up in a country, and they're like, you know, because culture and religion were completely, you know, the same thing at the same time, they would insinuate themselves to, to, you know, the people who they identified as like influencers, just to use a modern term, and they would recruit them into this, into this cult. And that would ensure their loyalty. And that would ensure that the, the, the people in key positions would be carrying out their orders. So this cult was, was suppressed during, um, well, allegedly suppressed during the fourth and fifth centuries in Rome. But the thing is, is that it sort of became tied in with like the state cult of Rome, which was uh, Saul. That Saul had been, you know, Saul had replaced like the old pantheon of Jupiter and, and Juno and Apollo and all these kind of things. And it became almost like a proto monotheistic cult of the sun. And that Mithras and the sun were sort of seen as, you know, drinking buddies, Li- like literally drinking buddies. You'd see all these like <laughs> pieces of artwork showing them like drinking together and stuff, like hanging out. Like we're just chilling, man. <laughs> you know, the state cult and, you know, the elite cults, man, we're, we're, <laughs> It's just happy a beer hour, together, man. man. <laughs> so anyway, so um, <clears throat> I think that Mithraism was kind of revived during the 19th century. Okay. And it was part of this, like, there was this huge sort of, because of, you know, all these archaeological expeditions that we started seeing, there was this huge revival of, like, Greco-Romanism and, you know, sort of Egyptomania that all the stuff from the ancient world, all these icons and stuff were starting to become public art. You know, you're starting to see them. And like so I said, if you go into New York, you're going to see, particularly in like the, the midtown section in New York, you're going to see, you know, images of these ancient gods all over the place, particularly in, in Rockefeller Center. So I, I believe, what I believe happened is that sort of this nexus of, of Masonic and crypto-Masonic groups had sort of latched onto Mithras and Mithraism to be sort of like, almost like a counter-Christianity, like like an underground reaction or an underground um, answer, you know, that it it was a mystery cult that had, you know, like they had their own Christ, they had Mithras. And the interesting thing about it, I mean, if you really want to get into like the specifics of it, is that a lot of the iconography of Mithraism includes this god called Phanus, and Phanus is basically the Greek word for Lucifer. It's the same word. And also, I mean, Mithras is a god of light. So this is when we started seeing like this whole thing about like Luciferianism show up, you know, particularly through like people like Leo Taxel, because I, I think that was sort of like a limited hangout kind of deal because I, I think that the there was a not all the elites. I mean, you're talking a lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds and beliefs and so on. But I, I think that sort of this core 
uh, elite that were loyal to like the city of London and the British Empire system became Mithraists, like neo-Mithraists, so to speak. And this is why you see this iconography all over the place, even though people don't recognize it. For instance, um, Prometheus in Rockefeller Center is not Prometheus. It's, it's almost an orthodox rendering of Mithras being born from the rock and you know, rising above the zodiac, which is rising above the limitations of time. Um, the Statue of Liberty, I mean, has anybody really looked at the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a dude in, in drag, you know what I mean? But it's also, that comes from the second degree initiation of the Mithraic Mysteries, which was called Nymphus, and it was, you know, where you were the bride of Venus. And basically the, you know, sort of the plebes, the pledges would dress up as women, you know, for whatever reason you can extrapolate there. Um, but you just see this all over the place. You see this, this symbolism in the strangest places. I mean, for instance, Mike Bloomberg set up his, um, you know, the Bloomberg headquarters in, in London and, and felt that it would be a really good idea to take, uh, you know, an excavated Mithraic temple that had been found like a few blocks away and move it into his headquarters. Like, you know, he went through all the time and expense because Interesting decision. That's like the found, like the, the symbolism is really uh, unmistakable here. Like Mithraism, the Mithraic temple is the foundation, of the literally the foundation of his London headquarters. So it's just like you know, what does that symbolism entail? I mean, but you just see this all over the place. You see the symbolism in so many different like places that you wouldn't expect it, and it's often symbolism that that people, you know, would not recognize as this. So it's, it's, it's a phenomenon that you can sort of see trace through, again, this, this cohort, this coterie of upper echelon people who sort of exist in this city of London orbit. You know what I mean? The city of London, which is a sovereign, it's all, I think it's almost like a sovereign city-state. You know, it's, it's a city unto itself. It's not subject to the laws of, of the, the city at large. And this is where you know, all the big banking houses and everything were. And I believe, um, I believe the, is it the Bank of, I think the Bank of England was actually built atop an ancient Mithraic temple itself. So, I mean, I don't know how much these people might actually believe, like there's this Mithras character, you know, but they're loyal to the group. They're loyal to the cult, and and they show that by going to great time and expense to display these icons. I mean, for instance, another great example of this is, you know, I, I'd mentioned Phanus. I mean, Phanus is at the, the gate of St. Louis University, which is the Jesuit University in St. Louis. I mean, they, the thing looks, I mean, not only is it Phanus, but it's it's like uh, trans-Phanus. It's like Phanus in, in, a, in a female form. And the thing looks really, it you know, it's not definitely not something you'd expect to see at a uh, you know a nominally Catholic university. So the symbolism is is all over the place, and um, I, I just think that people don't recognize it because it's a very obscure topic. Mm -hmm. Understandably, I mean, it's it's not something that people tend to think about. But unfortunately, I mean, we have this whole 
cottage industry of, of, of people, you know, like the Illuminati and, and Satanism and stuff. And it's just like, and that just fails the sniff test when you just start to think about basic human psychology, you know what I mean? That Satanists generally are losers. And sec- like to me, like the core following of, of Satanism is like losers and, 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 and perverts, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like sex pests. So why would people who, who see themselves as like above human n- not only want to identify with, you know, the loser in, in a story that they don't even believe in, you know, a religion that they don't even recognize, but also want to associate with all these like losers like Anton LaVey and all these weirdos and perverts and stuff like Lucien Greaves and, you know, Marilyn Manson, <laughs> you know I mean? just all these freaks. <laughs> You know, who's going to want to identify with that? And, and again, like the basic psychology, and this is something, ironically, that I kind of cottoned on to when I was doing Our Gods Were Hispanics, because I was looking at the superhero, uh, supervillains, right? Lex Luthor, Dr. Doom, and everything. And I went back and read these stories. The supervillains never see themselves as villains. They always see themselves as the hero, right? They, they know what's best for the world. They're doing what's right. And, and it's us plebes, you know, that are getting in their way. You know, it's the, we're stopping their apoth- not only their apotheosis, but you know, their godhood will benefit everyone. And and this is something you know. It's funny because before I, I worked on the book, uh, William B. Davis, who played the Smoking Man in the X Files, had always said that he saw himself as the hero of this, the series. You know, like he was the good guy, and Mulder was the little punk troublemaker trying to like screw right. everything up. You know, but that's that's a very you know. William B. Davis is a guy who comes from classical theater. He understands Shakespeare. He understands the great writers. He understands the psychology of the great writers. So by saying that he th- thinks himself as the hero of, of the X-Files, you know, he's showing that he understands like Richard III and Macbeth. I mean, he understands the psychology at work in these supervillains, that they always see themselves as right and everyone else is wrong. So. In that case, if these people see themselves as the heroes, they're going to want to gravitate towards heroic imagery, towards heroic symbolism. They're not want to gravitate towards Satanism. And first of all, you know, Satanism doesn't actually exist. I mean, there's no corpus of literature, uh, satanic literature. You can't point to it. I mean, unless you count in like the the grimoires, the medieval grimoires, which are just basically texts for controlling demons. I mean, you don't have anything recognizable as such until Anton LaVey in 1966. And Anton LaVey was, was a fink. He was a snitch. He was a, he was a police informant. And, I'm, you know, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that he had higher connections than that because it, it's all coming with the creation of a program called MK Often, you know, like, which was like MK Ultra is more, much more secretive, big, a little brother that's that we saw give rise to Manson, Zodiac, serial killers, serial killer films, Satanism, Satanistic movies, you know, all this stuff just seemed to pop out of the clear blue sky at a time, you know, the mid sixties, that was very bright and sunny and optimistic. All of a sudden we just, this cloak of darkness seems to descend. And, and I would argue, and I've argued in the past that this was, 
this is part of a program. This is a deliberate part of a program. So do you see Satanism, like the, the rise of Satanism in, in pop culture? I mean, we also had like the Satanic Panic in, I think, the 80s. Do you see that as almost just sort of a, a way to distract from maybe what the real symbolism being used is or, or the real belief systems that are used, the, the, Mithra, the Mithras cult and that sort of thing? Do you see it as more like, oh, yeah, no, that's that crazy Satanism stuff. That, that, that's all nonsense. Is, is it a more just that kind of thing where it's, you know, with any big, when I, with any truth, there always seems to be a bunch of fake nonsense put out there to, to sort of associate that with the truth. So is that how you would see the rise of Satanism in the culture? Absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. Um, you know, it's interesting because you would have in like the medieval monasteries, like inversions of the, you know, what the, they call the black mass and stuff. But this was all like, it was almost, you know, like kink, you know, it was almost like sex play. They, people, people in elites are not going to gravitate towards that symbolism. They're just not. They're going to gravitate towards heroic, world conquering, you know, uh, star traveling. You name it, they're not going to gravitate towards this grimy little collection of of heavy metal heads. You know, it's just not going to appeal to them. Right. And I, I absolutely do think that this was a distraction. But when you, this is the thing that when I went back and I used to talk about the Satanic Panic, like the way it's talked about in like the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. The Satanic Panic was created by the mainstream media. It was literally created, it was literally concocted by the mainstream media. And it started in 1980 when St. Martin's Press published a book called Michelle Remembers that was the start of all the SRA stuff. And, you know, as soon as that soaked into the, the public consciousness, you know, then Geraldo and Sally Jesse Raphael and Phil Donahue and Oprah, I mean, all the big talk shows are pushing this stuff around the clock, you know, particularly Geraldo. And it was not organic, okay? And the stuff with the, um, so they always blame it on, like, fundamentalism stuff. So you always sort of had, like, fringe fundamentalist sects, you know, people like Tex Mars, Jack Chick, that were pushing this kind of satanic panic stuff. But it was never mainstream. I mean, even very conservative uh, fundamentalist churches had no interest in this stuff at all. The people who were pushing the churches that were pushing it were all like these skeevy kind of, you know, people like Jack Larson, uh, these very, you know, almost like these bottom feeders who were, were pushing this stuff. It was not being pushed by the mainstream churches, you know, even like the mainstream Baptist, Southern Baptist, uh, evangelical churches. They, they, they had no interest in this stuff. They really didn't. It was, it was a, a very skeevy thing that was picked up. By again, like these almost like fly by night tent preachers, you know what I mean? It was not establishment at all. But the thing that was driving it was the mainstream media, not only with the, the more overt depictions, you know, of SRA and so on, but also all the stuff you saw in Hollywood. You know, there was just an avalanche of stuff. I mean, particularly in the 80s, uh, slasher. Gore, you know, um, Hellblazer, you know, uh, the dead movies. I mean, you had just this unending, unending stream 
of gore and slasher films, but also satanic films, but also like all the satanic symbolism in the um in, in some of these heavy metal groups and so on. And this, the, all these groups were most of them, you know, unless you're talking to people like um, Venom, you know, these more underground groups. But people like Slayer and all these groups, they're all signed to huge conglomerates. You know, they they weren't like under. This was not an underground phenomenon. This was being financed by the top corporations in the world. So there was. It's it's very hard to see how there wasn't an agenda at work here. Mm. And like I said, the correlation between the rise of the slasher films and serial killers, and then the fall of both. I mean, the the curve is almost identical. You know, if you looked at a graph, it would it follows the same lines. So it was not organic. It was all being pushed into the culture for specific reasons and specific outcomes. And again, was not was not was not being pushed by the people who you know when people like Lucian Greaves and Marilyn Manson get on TV today and and anytime any Satanist is criticized for anything, they start screaming satanic panic. Well, I mean, that's very convenient because the same people who are paying their checks, you know, that are supporting their lifestyles were the same people that were pushing this stuff back in the 80s and 90s. You know, it's, 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 it's a scam. It, it, it really gets to the point that it really pisses me off, too. You know what I mean? Because it was manufactured. It was deliberately manufactured. And now we, we get to the point. That if, if I write something like, you know, when I write a post about how I think this little NAS, NAS X video is, I didn't even like get on a moral high horse about it. I just said, this is crap. And this is just not good. You know, it's not feeding your brain in any way. It's just the one where he's things. like doing a lap dance for, for, uh, yes. Yeah. Satan, yeah basically. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I was just making fun of it. And I had all these people coming out of the woodwork, you know, screaming satanic panic at me. It's just like, do you, do you read my, my blog? I mean, do you even know who you're talking to? It's just very frustrating. But this is how propaganda works. Propaganda works through repetition. Okay? So when you ask me, like, why is all this stuff being fed out into the media and so on? It's conditioning. You know, propaganda is a conditioning process. It's to change people's thinking. And the way that's done is through constant reinforcement. And that's why we see this stuff in the media, in halftime shows, award shows, you know, music video, you know, all this kind of stuff. Because it's part of a, of a conditioning process. I mean, there's also, I mean, there are also sort of after effects of that because there are also people who are just like hopping on the bandwagon and aren't part of the program. But that's sort of that's sort of factored in to the to the program. It's like, well, we know we're going to get a bunch of people just sort of hopping on the bandwagon, and maybe they're going to get the details wrong, and they're going to sort of muddy the waters and so on, you know. But we can account for that. I mean, that 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 helps us. That ultimately helps us because it helps us to get these symbols and these ideas reinforced in the public mind. In the t- in terms of the people who get this symbology out there who want the symbology out there what is the power that they see 
in having it out there. If, if like, if like you're saying, like you and I are having this conversation and I've read a lot of your work. So I kind of have a background of what you're talking about, but a lot of people listening were like, I don't what well, I think, well, I don't even know what the symbology means. So why does it matter to me if they're, you know, putting this mythic symbology out there? If I don't even know anything about it, what, what, what does it do to me? What, what power can it have over me? So what do they believe at least power it has by them putting it out there or what to say what power to say michael bloomberg see in moving a mythic temple into his building if most people you know if the common man has no idea what that even is well with the mythic stuff i don't think that's meant for us okay that's a di- that's a difference between like they say tan the quote-unquote satanic type of imagery then. yeah i mean there are different things at work here and you know it gets to be very complicated and i think there are different factions with different objectives right but i think as far as like the myth this is something that i've been written i was writing about very early on when i was saying you know don't assume that you know just because you recognize the symbolism that it was created for for you or for the public you know i mean in a lot of cases it's in-house it's it's meant for for people who understand it it's not meant for people it's meant for people who are part of the club you know i mean it's it's signaling right right it's you know signaling to each other but you know in, in a lot of ways, I think it's almost like a keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. It's just like, well, okay, the Rockefellers put that big old statue of, of Mithras, you know, right in the middle of the Rockefeller Center courtyard there. Well, I'm going to put a Mithraic temple <laughs> in my basement. You know what I mean? It's just like, it, it's almost, it gets almost kind of comical, you know, that the, the competition. And, you know, for instance, AT&T now, I mean, they've always had the, the giant Phanus statue literally lucifer as their symbol since the 20s right and now they moved that um that statue to their new world headquarters three blocks away from dealey plaza so when you talk about symbolism i mean what does that entail (laughs) i mean like why is that you know why does their headquarters have to be three blocks away from dealey plaza and and why did they put this giant statue there you know this giant golden famous statue there well, it's signaling, you know, I mean, it's, it's internal communications, let's just say, in, in my opinion. But then there's like the stuff that we get, which is the junk, you know, this, the, the little Nas X stuff, Marilyn Manson. And it's funny, too, because a lot of people say, oh, you're just getting old and everything. It's just like, no, I always hated this stuff. <laughs> you know? I always hated, I, you know, I hated Slayer, you know, I, I hated all this kind of stuff. I, I just, you know, it's never my bag. And I'm, I'm like a guy, you know, I was always kind of precocious. I had always, you know, so I had grown up, I was listening to like 70s hard rock. And then when the 80s stuff came around, I was just like, this is, this is, a, this isn't a suitable replacement. You know, this is, this is a pretty piss poor substitute, you know, and that's why I became like a huge 90s rock fan, because it was like all guys my age who would cut the teeth on the same records that I had. You know? So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, there, there were lots of things going on, but I think that the main thrust of it, and it isn't just the dark occultic symbolism, it's also uh, all the other social engineering programs that are going on, like woke and the trans movement and stuff. It's all, it's a, it's a very ambitious, large scale attempt to, to, reinvent humanity i I think it's all doomed to absolute failure well that's good news i guess (laughs) no i i I, listen i'm not when i say this kind of stuff people like accuse me of being like a 
Pollyanna or having false hope or everything. Mm -hmm. It's just like, no, I, I have an understanding of history because everything is cyclical. Everything sort of follows the same cycles. And we're seeing the same process repeat now. Um, it's, it's, it's going to fail. And it's going to fail spectacularly. And the reason why I'm, that doesn't make me optimistic is that I think we're all going to suffer for it. Mm. I think we're all going to have to deal with the consequences of this, this madness, this delusion, this mass delusion that's taken place among the elites and the upper classes that we're going to have to, we're going to, have to pick up their pieces because it's all going to fail. It's all based on nonsense. You know, for instance, one of the things I talk a lot, a lot of, on the blog about is just like this, all this fake tech stuff, you know, that we've been fed this mythology for a number of years that the, the same level of innovation that we saw following World War II was going to just exponentially increase forever, you know, and they yeah. started putting out this, this fake Moore's Law idea that our level of technology is just going to double and people just took this for granted just, we should be flying around in, in little flying cars all over the place right now according to what i heard when i was growing up listen okay how old are you i'm 41 okay so i'm gosh i'm 15 years older than you um i i was hearing this stuff in the 70s when i was a kid like i i was like convinced that you know we're going to be living on moon bases and we're all going right. to be bionic and you know, it's just basically going to, like by now. I mean, if you t if you went back to the seventies when I was a kid and I was just believing all this nonsense, and told me like in two thousand twenty two it's going to look pretty much the same. It's just going to be like more computer stuff all over the place. I would have thought you were insane. You know, it's like no, we're going to have jetpacks and and hover cars, teleportation. And, yeah, we're going to be living on dome cities on on Mars and everything. And it was all lies. And I, I believe that the people who were putting out there knew it was lies. But I think we believed it. A lot of people believe it. A lot of people still believe it. And I think a lot of people in sort of these upper echelons, you know, in the C-suite, so to speak, you know, the mm -hmm. corner offices, believed it too. And I, I think one of the things that's going on now is that I think the realization is finally starting to soak in that this stuff is never going to materialize. You know, I mean, all this science fiction, comic book insanity that was really getting pushed quite heavily five or six years ago. It, it's just, it's never going to happen. It's not going to materialize because it's all lies. You know, scientists are liars. They're, they're bigger liars than, than most people. You know, I mean, this is not an opinion. This is not an aspersion. This is provable fact. This has actually become a real major problem with what's called the replication crisis, that all these uh, experiments are being published that nobody can reproduce. It's all vaporware. It's all lies. Mm. I mean, personally, I believe that it's, it's all part of like a, a program to like, I call it the, uh, the anti-Kaczynski program, you know, like we want to <laughs> just keep uh, any potential Unabombers, you know, satiated with, with tons of public money. Right. No, but I, I really believe, I mean, people who, who are familiar with my work are going to know that, that I believe that we've reached peak tech already, and we're going to be on the downslope. Because one thing that I always say, and I, I think is starting to soak through now, is that just because something exists on paper doesn't mean it exists in the real world. 
just because something exists in an experimental state doesn't mean it can be scaled up, mm. okay? So when you hear about all this stuff, A, most of it is probably lies, but the rest of it is just stuff that has no, that can't be scaled up. It can't be mass produced. It can't be popularized, all right? It's, it's never going to reach the masses, certainly. So do you think we're not going to really, uh, do you think we're not going to really end up basically living in the metaverse i mean do, do you think that's part of this sort of vaporware no no well that's that's another that's well for, first of all i did the whole thing on a whole all the mithraic implications of that whole rollout but um no i mean last i checked uh facebook had lost 40 percent of their market cap i mean I, I just looked yesterday i don't know what it's like today but um no facebook is failing or meta whatever they want to call themselves the metaverse first of all mark Zuckerberg had said himself that he doesn't see the, the the metaverse being you know fully usable or fully operational until 2030. And when guys like that say 2030, they mean never. And he seriously, so, yeah, just, he did this it, whole rollout of it, and then there's like, so where is it? He's like, well, someday. <laughs> yeah, it it was. I think that was a real hail mary pass because a lot there's, there's been a lot of negative attention being paid to that company for all the data mining and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think that he was just, it was a desperation movement. And it seemed like it was thrown together very, very quickly, uh, it, very half-assed. That, that whole rollout and that promotional video he made was, I, I thought I was like back in 1990 watching like a you know, lawnmower man or something. It was pathetic. <laughs> it, was just, it was embarrassing. And I, I think you know, that company has always just been about data mining and surveillance. And I think that they've reached their natural end. And like I said, they've lost 40% of their market cap. You know, they, they had a bigger one-day loss than, what was it, the, the entire GDP of Estonia. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, losing, they're losing more money in a day than, you know, most countries spend in a year. So, I mean, just, just anecdotally, I mean, there was a time probably four or five years ago when we are this podcast and, and many other people I know were consistently using Facebook advertising as a way to grow or try to grow. And now in this day and age, it's anybody I talk to about this stuff. Everyone just kind of jokes about how obviously we're not going to do Facebook advertising because that's useless. Everybody just kind of knows that now. So I, I can, I've definitely seen that. Yeah. I've definitely seen that, that trend. It, it's, it is useless. The only time I have a click on a, on a Facebook ad is by accident. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was meant to click this and I ended up like, you know, whatever manscaping products they're trying to sell me. Um, no, it, Facebook is, it's funny because I had joined, I guess, 2009. And it was really hopping for a while. And then I quit. I quit in 2018. And then some people had asked me to come back, like, you know, for my f- people in my family and stuff and friends of mine. Because a couple people from our circles had died, and you know, it was kind of you know, come back together, you know, and and sort of console each other and so on. And then I found out that my old group, my old Secret Sun group, they had just started up again. I had made it inactive, and they started up again and gave it to some other person. Luckily, the person they gave it to was like this really cool guy from England, who's one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And uh, you know, he he handed the keys over to me, and the, the group is kind of been going ever since but it's it's nothing like the way it was like 10 years ago and facebook 
like I go in there, I used to work in nursing homes, you know what I mean? For particularly nursing homes for people with um, like senile dementia and Alzheimer's and stuff. And this is going to sound facetious, but when I go into Facebook, that's kind of how I get the same vibe, like dead, dying and sad and broken, you know? And again, I don't, I don't mean to be facetious or, I think that's a I think that's a fair summary of how how a lot of us feel. Uh, I, I barely go on Facebook now, except to manage a couple couple things. It's, dep- it's it's oppressive. Like it isn't just depressing now; it's oppressive. Like the depression is oppressive. You know, it's it's. Um, but I think the whole model is is obsolete. And it, you know, I said this a while back. I was like, you know, Facebook reminds me so much of like AOL back in the old dial up days. When I got on AOL, like I, I got on AOL and I had a 2400 BPS modem. So this is like 93, right? This is like ancient. And even that was like, it was kind of like a secondhand modem. And, but I was like, I couldn't believe it. It was like, when you talk about dopamine hits, man. I was like mainlining dopamine day and night. And, and just on this like little, this little. That sound, uh, that sound for fa- when you log on to AOL. <laughs> Yeah. That used to excite me as a kid because, like you said, I mean, I, I realize it now. It's it is a dopamine hit. You know, it's just like we're getting with yeah. the likes, the the retweets, all yeah. of this stuff. It's all a little tiny, you know, ooh ooh into your brain. But now it's just bombarding us. Whereas, you know, I had to took me twenty minutes to log on to AOL or wait till my mom was off the phone or what have you. Yeah, <laughs> no, but when I get back to peak tech, I mean, so tech doesn't exist on its own. It needs people to run it. Okay. And not only are we, we facing sort of a worldwide demographic collapse, most troubling in Asia, right? Because so much of the technology we, we use relies on Asian engineers and so on. But we're just not going to have the people to maintain this. And, you know, I know that it's, it's such a cliche to talk about snowflakes and everything like that. But who's going to get up in the cherry pickers during a hurricane and fix the, the, light, the wiring? You know, who's going to do that? You know, if somebody um, has has a, a mental breakdown because you use the wrong pronouns, do you think they're going to have the intestinal fortitude to, to to do what it takes? Change their oil or fix their tire? I mean, to even yeah, the basic to keep things. These, to keep these systems running, mm. these systems are not self-sustaining. They need people to fix them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's grinding, boring work that people more often than not are almost forced into. But if we have like this declining population and declining rates of technological education, who's going to do this work? You know what I mean? Meta is, is never going to happen. I mean, you, you might see some sort of second lifestyle simulacrum of it, mm-hmm. but it's nothing. It's what they are promising now. I guarantee you is never going to happen. A because of bandwidth, the, the bandwidth requirements are just too exorbitant. It's going to require a massive infrastructure expense of installing all this extra uh, wiring and so on, and it's just it's just never going to happen. And 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 like I said, I mean Zuckerberg is is losing billions of dollars every day. It's just, it's not going to happen. The fact that he thought it would happen, or he thought people thought it would happen, just shows you the power of conditioning. The, shows you the power of Hollywood conditioning. You know, shows you the power of like science fiction conditioning that we were so immersed. You know, you go to the movies, 
and you watch um, like a movie that I've been thinking about for some reason that, I mean, it isn't even really something that you would point to as an advertisement. But I've been thinking about Event Horizon a lot for some reason. And I've just been thinking of like when you see these movies and you see them on the giant screen and just you just feel like you're on that ship. You know, you just feel like you're inside of it. And Star Wars and Star Trek and all these kind of things that they push incessantly. Um, you, you feel like you're part of it. You know, the, the power of the cinema. And that I'm telling you, that just does not translate to, to, to television, even large screen television. I mean, listen, I worked uh, for Marvel, freelance for Marvel for 25 years, right? I got to the point that, A, I just got totally sick of the movies that I'd you know, been creating artwork for. And secondly, I'd watch something like Avengers Infinity War, and the CGI looked embarrassing on a TV screen. It looks great on a movie screen for some reason, but when you look at it, just looks like Sonic the Hedgehog or something. It's, it's really silly. So, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a major problem for them because you know, there's always the carrot and the stick, right? And the carrot has always been like this technological wonderland that if you just obey and fall in line, you'll be able to take part in. But that technological wonderland is not coming. In fact, you know, I almost see like the exact opposite of it, particularly if they, they think that they can keep pumping up the economy by all these crazy police actions and elective wars, you know? Well, Chris, there are there are many many directions we could go here, and I, I think we could spend pr- the next nine hours talking about this, and and still have many more to go. So I think we'll wrap things up today. Maybe we will follow up sometime because there's again, and if people are interested in what they've been hearing today, I encourage them to follow your work because this is the kind of stuff that you dive deep on all the time, whether it's other interviews you do or all the writing you do, so or the books that you write. So why don't you just let everybody know how they can best find your work and follow what you're doing and support what you're doing. Yes, um, secretsun.blogspot.com is sort of the mothership, and there are links to uh, the Patreon, and we've been getting very, very deep on there. I'm much deeper than I get on the blog. And uh, also, my latest book is the 2022 edition of The Endless American Midnight, and that's available on Amazon. So, like again, if you go to secretsun.blogspot.com and just poke around, you'll get to wherever you want to be. But uh, if you use the webpage, I know a lot of people go there by phone now, but it's, it's best if you go there by uh, the webpage, like on a laptop or whatever, because on the front page, you know, there, there are a lot of indices and so on that will get you whatever topic you're looking for will get you there right away. Cool. Well, well thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I know you will continue to be out there roaring about all this stuff like the lion you are as well so take care thanks a lot thanks we kitties how about that i really hope you enjoyed that conversation i know it was very much outside the box of the typical lines of liberty interview that you would have heard over the last seven eight years but well Let's just say we don't live in typical times anymore, and so I'm not looking to produce a typical show anymore. That's that's the way I see it, and I, I really do do enjoy Chris's work. I found it intriguing for a long time, so I, I hope you do get value out of it as well, and I hope you get value out of 
Everything here coming out of the Lions of Liberty Network. Again, Brian on Wednesdays with ELL, Electric Liberty Land. Odie wraps things up every Thursday. And of course, there's so much with Finding Freedom, I should say. And of course, there's so much bonus content behind that little paywall on Patreon, on Locals, lionsofliberty.locals.com. If you're a Patreon at first, or you can head over to Patreon where we have all of the various tiers you can find there, all the way up to the Mufasa level. At the Mufasa level, you get calls each and every month. You get to hop on a call with John, Brian, and myself. That's just a measly 25 smackers a month for direct access to your hosts here, as well as all the way up to the Aslan level where our good friends at $100 a month, our good friends at Good Morning Liberty have been supporters at that level for, my God, I don't know, how it's, I think it's almost two years at this point. Our good friends, Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty, one of the many benefits they get from being at that level is they get to get a mention here each and every week. So if you are into the Liberty News, into current events, and want to hear more of that filtered, if you don't get enough from Brian on Wednesdays, guess what Nate and Charlie do? They give it to you five days a week, five days a week of, frankly, really interesting. These guys are really funny, and they know their shit. They're really smart guys, I, I will say. Much, much smarter than me, of course. And uh, you know, they have so much uh, background in the various different fields, including the healthcare industry, the music industry. They are expert stock traders. I mean, these guys have so much freaking knowledge that it's a shame that we're both allowed to beyond podcast platforms because they just they just blow me away i'm not gonna lie but either way do check out my friends nate and charlie on good morning liberty five days a week you can find them over on every podcast platform of course as well as their always amazing url bernielies.com that's good morning liberty be sure to check that one out and you can access all of that bonus content all of the bonus content we have including live streams of interviews like the one i did today you can get early access to all of this stuff as well as shows like conspiracy corner good morning fuckhead every each and every weekday from Brian McWilliams, Degenerate Gamblers. There is just so much fun behind that paywall. You can get it all for as little as five bucks a month. You really can't beat that. And you really can't beat sticking with me, sticking with Mark Claire each and every Monday. So I hope to see you again next week. And guys, I only, as always, I have only one request. And that is, of course, to continue to live long and live free and live free and live free and live free. And live free.